Good morning. How we doing? I'm doing good. I'll tell you all about it in just a sec. Uh, first, by way of housekeeping, I just wanted to point one out thing out to you in uh, the bulletins. Hey, uh, honey, I forgot my clicker. Do you mind bringing it to me? It's somewhere hidden there. Um, if you'll notice in your bulletin, this is kind of uh, housekeeping for us. From the office, if you need to give Denise information or need to do something, or her to do something for you during the week, we are changing the way we're kind of doing that. There are index cards over on the back kind of uh, sound podium there. And if you want to fill that out, you can stick that in the box of her office. She's just kind of getting overwhelmed sometimes on a Sunday morning. So because this is kind of a change to the procedure or the way we do things, I thought I would take a moment and mention it up here. Second, we slept in our house for the first time last night. And uh, I wondered why did we get this particular house? That question kind of came in mind several times throughout this whole process. We've been living in a trailer out back for six months now. And uh, you know, the Lord is good though. Because we were living there so long, we really got to build friendships here quickly with a lot of people. And all those people who've been coming and helping us with our house, we've been so blessed by that. And I have all of these new friendships through that work together. And I saw something of the, just kind of the, the generous service spirit of this church yesterday. And we had 30 plus people helping us move all of our stuff and just shifting things around. And so the feeling that I have is just gratitude. And uh, I didn't sleep very well. I guess a new, new place and new getting used to it. It doesn't move right. I'm used to when I get up at night, the whole thing shakes. And <laughs> this house didn't shake. So. so this morning we are continuing our series in John's Gospel, the hidden music of John. And... Uh, I was half tempted to kind of move us along a little more quickly and go from Nicodemus right into the Samaritan woman because we've already talked a little bit about John the Baptist. But today's lesson, I wasn't quite sure how to get a full sermon out of it, but I, I'm doing my best here But because there's just gold, I think. And so I, rather than just kind of run through and try to get highlights, I guess more my bias is to stop and smell the roses. And uh, figuratively, there are a lot of roses in Scripture. Verses that we're tempted to just kind of run right by or we just gloss over or, yeah, 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 we know that. But what if we stop instead and just soak in some of the truths and the treasure that are there for us? Starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his, and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Well, this is one of those little verses we would tend to run right past. But if we slow down and pay attention, we can actually learn a whole lot. We look at phrases and we look at words that are used repeatedly in John's gospel because he's very intentional about the language that he uses. We ask questions about what's going on in the situation. Uh, 
We ask questions about where's Jesus going? What does Jesus spend his time doing? What activities or people does Jesus invest himself in? Uh, for example, Jesus had a very important ministry and mission that was given to him by the Father, and he sets out to do that, but before he even really gets going at it, he takes time to celebrate a wedding at Cana. Well, Jesus knew that celebration was important. And then the question's like, why does Jesus take time to make a whip and clear out the temple? What was he trying to teach? What was he trying to accomplish when he did this? Jesus was teaching his disciples something about the holiness of God. And so then in a single verse in 322, we already have several things that we can observe. Why did Jesus go to the Judean countryside? From Jerusalem proper, the temple area, why did he go out? What was he trying to accomplish that made the countryside more important? Who was he spending time with, and what was he doing with those people? In chapter 2, Jesus showed us that celebration is important. Jesus showed us that the holiness of God is important. Now Jesus is modeling for us that relationships are important. And these particular relationships have to do with the people that he was investing in. Jesus was discipling these people and modeling something for us as well, I think. Now, what about the activities that they were undertaking? Well, they were baptizing people, and that's also significant. In the hidden, hidden music of John's gospel, this may be pointing out something to us. Uh, we've already had several occasions where we find Jesus taking a tradition that's there and what he brings, what Jesus brings, it's even better. So ways in which Jesus fulfills and surpasses Judaism. 2, 1 through 11, Jesus provides new wine that is vastly, it vastly surpasses anything that contemporary Judaism could offer and renders obsolete the stone jars of purification. So both in quality and quantity, what Jesus brings in that situation is better. 12, uh, verse 12 through 25 of chapter 2, Jesus displaces the temple where God dwells from a geographic location and a building to his own body, and us, by extension, become the body of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 21, Jesus fulfills prophecy, prophecies of water and spirit regeneration, and proves in his death to be the ultimate antitype of the snake lifted up into the desert, as he himself refers to himself being lifted up on the cross, and all who look to him will find healing and new life. And now in this instant, we are given a little glimpse uh, we see Jesus initiating a baptism ministry that surpasses that of John the Baptist. Everywhere Jesus goes, he brings something better. And the fullness of what Jesus brings is yet to be revealed. These people who were baptized by his disciples in this, in this place... They hadn't yet experienced the dark days of Jesus' death by crucifixion. They hadn't yet experienced the joy of the resurrection. 
nor had they experienced the fullness of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which came at Pentecost. And the point I'm making is that they didn't receive the fullness of everything that Jesus wanted to give them all at one time. But if they stuck with Jesus, if they kept looking to Him, the fullness of His generosity will be revealed. And I wonder if that's a lesson for us. Some of us have refused to come to the Lord through dying to ourselves in baptism. Others, we're baptized and then we get bored and we scurry off like it's no big deal. We just kind of, well, I've done the ritual. I've got the life insurance policy. I'll just go and do my thing. And we don't continue to pursue Jesus Christ. Do you want to live an amazing life full of joy and love and purpose? Then keep chasing after Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't quit. And when you fall down, get back up. Don't let anything come between you and your Savior, Jesus Christ. As we go on in our text, it says, Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and the people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. Anon means, literally the translation means something like many springs or abundant water. And interestingly, we find in this passage, John's ministry doesn't stop immediately with the appearance of Jesus. Did you think about that ever? That it just, they kind of go simultaneously. And so we have this situation today in today's text where these two ministries are baptizing people side by side. One ministry is growing and the other ministry is declining, is diminishing. And then the author of the fourth gospel tells us, this was before John was put into prison. And this isn't just John stating the obvious, which he seems to be doing sometimes, but rather it's letting us know that all of the events of chapters 2 through 4 take place earlier than anything that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see, these synoptic gospels place the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee after the time John the Baptist had already been arrested. And so only John's gospel reports on this earlier Judean ministry of Jesus. So it's just another wonderful gift that the church is given by having four different gospels. They all have their interesting little window and perspective and slice in the life of Jesus. Well, because these two things are going on side by side, it says, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. So now we see John's disciples getting a little frustrated over what they perceive to be the competition. 
They're wondering about the durability of their ministry. They start with an argument over ceremonial washing. The, the activities of baptism, what John the Baptist did, what Jesus was doing, it was kind of suspect to the Jewish people anyway. And so now that they're, they're feeling these questions and now this instance comes, well, seems like more people are going to Jesus now and less people are coming to us. And you know how we humans tend to react to situations like that. They're wondering what's going to happen. They're wondering why their rabbi, John the Baptist, is not being more assertive. I think the statement, everyone is going to him, is an exaggeration that betrays John's disciples' resentment since verse 23 had just told us that John was still attracting considerable crowds. Basically, these disciples are trying to motivate their teacher by what they're saying. Fight for your fair share! You deserve more. You deserve better. You need to be more assertive. That isn't fair. We were here first. Who do they think they are? That, that's the question, actually. And now John the Baptist, he takes those questions and the resentment that's re revealed and the envy that's revealed in his disciples, and he shows his greatness, but in a way that always comes to us human beings as a surprise and sometimes even a disappointment. He shows his disciples the greatness of humility. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. If you were in the place of John the Baptist, how easy would it be to pretend that you were a little more important than you really are? How easy would it have been to be a little bit more competitive with Jesus? How easy would it have been to give in to the talk and the expectations of your followers? Yeah, maybe I do deserve a little bit better now that you mention it. Since you brought it up, maybe I do need to be a little more assertive. But the amazing thing in this narrative is this kind of thinking this normal way of thinking, it's not even on John the Baptist's radar. You see, his humility has saved him from having to pretend to be something he is not. His humility has saved him from competition. His humility has saved him from envy and discontentment and arrogance. 
Humility has paved the way for John the Baptist to let go of his own expectations and selfish desires. And so, as the ministry of Jesus Christ grows, John the Baptist has great joy. Now, I think that the lesson for us here is uh, this is a journey that all of us have to take. And we don't learn this just all in one go. This is something we have to learn again and again to be able to say from the depths of your own soul, Jesus Christ, you must become greater and I must become less. And when you can say this and when you can mean it, and when the life that you live shows this to be true, instead of being diminished, you will discover great joy. You grow into new depths of love that you didn't even know were possible. But it's not easy for us. It's not easy for us to let go of envy or jealousy or presumption. It's not easy to surrender self-will, to live your life for Christ in every way. It's not easy. Because in the depths, the depths of our pride and our sin, in our own brokenness and arrogance, we want to be God and we want to stand where God stands. I can run my own life, thank you very much. And because we have been given the gift of free will, we can become pretty good at pretending, you know what, I am the center of the universe. Now we have the good sense, common sense, not to say that to other selfish people around us, but we all know I am the center of the universe. If you want, you can spit in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want, you can ignore Jesus and never give him the time of day. But there's a time coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for some of us, that joy is ours even now. And for others, this time will come as a moment of great fear and dread. Well, in ancient Jewish weddings, one of the jobs of the best man is to look out and protect the bride and run other details as well until she is safely delivered into the arms of her groom. And with this analogy, John the Baptist is inviting his disciples to see this particular situation through new eyes. He's like, let go of your inner Grinch or your inner Scrooge and embrace something greater. As upsetting as it may be for some of John's disciples, the rising prominence of Jesus floods John the Baptist with surpassing joy. Because this is exactly what he has been called to do, and this is exactly what he is working for. To be a voice that cries out, prepare the way of the Lord. 
in the economy of the kingdom of heaven. We can celebrate when others do well. We can celebrate when others are blessed. Because we know that God is going to take care of us too. The whole mindset of scarcity, the whole mindset of competition in the kingdom of God, those things are undone. See, all of us have been taught by this world, and all too often this thinking has crept into the church, that the squeaky wheel, the assertive person, the domineering person, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. But in the kingdom of heaven, that's not the case. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. You see, John the Baptist, he knew the order of reality. John the Baptist knew the proper order of things where he would find both contentment and great joy. Jesus Christ, above all, over everything. Both John and Jesus were given their particular roles by heaven. And in his humility, John the Baptist is entirely content with himself declining and the ministry of Jesus Christ increasing. How much suffering do you and I face unnecessarily because we've not learned to be content with what the Lord has provided to us? So, uh, living as a missionary in Africa, uh, we were blessed to be able to afford people to help us out uh, with guarding our place, with uh, helping run our household. The culture there is very different, and uh, we would have a guy who, you know, you don't have power tools to cut your grass, you would get out little shears or trimmers and you would do that and, or little clippers. And so everything was very labor intensive. And uh, we had a guy who was working for us, uh, a friend of mine, his name was Joe Ellie. And uh, we had a great relationship, but it turned sour at some point. And he was told that you need to want something more. You're working for an Mzungu? Those guys got money hidden places. If you take them to court, if you sue them, you could be set for the rest of your life. And so he's hearing messages like this. And so there's, I can tell what's going on because suddenly one day he just kind of shows up late. He stops doing any of the work. He just kind of sits around. He's loafing and... He's trying to get himself fired. You know, I'm pretty laid back about stuff like this, so I let this go on for like a week. And then I was like, Joelle, you're coming here and you're not doing anything. We've had this relationship. We did this. What's going on? He's like, I'm just tired of it. I just don't want to do this anymore. And 
So I was like, well, you have to do these things. And he was like, are you firing me? He was like, you know, like wanting it so bad. And so he kept saying things until I was just like, well, I just don't know what to do. And he was like, okay, well, then I'm out of here. You fired me. You know, he said, had to say the words out of his mouth. And Swahili or little Sakuma he knew. Um, and so he goes, and I said, okay, well, here's a severance package for you. Here's uh, X amount of money. You've worked f with me for these couple years. Here you go. Sign this document, and here's all this cash, and did it with witnesses. And I was trying to bless him. I find out a week later he's suing us. And so he's reported us to the labor guys and everything. So I go in there and uh, I talk with them and we look at the Tanzanian labor laws and everything. And, and we're talking to the, the labor lawyers and stuff like that. He thought he was going to get a gold mine. But then we had done everything by the book and we had gone beyond what was required by law in Tanzania and we paid more than double what his severance was supposed to be anyway for the time that he worked with us. And so then he was like, now what? So his lawsuit against us couldn't go anywhere because we'd done everything right. He, was, he had lost his contentment. He had given in to false voices and he had lost his job over it. And it was kind of a sad situation. Uh, about three weeks later, he shows up at my gate and said, uh, I'm here for my job back. And I was like, Joelle, you didn't just stop working, you just sued me. He's like, yeah, I know, but I made a mistake. I'm, I want my job back. And I said, well, I can't give you a job back because I had hired someone else. And uh, then he was like, well, okay, give me a letter of recommendation. And I was like, wow, the audacity of this. But I, give him, I gave him a letter of recommendation. I said, Joely Simon, work for us from such and such date to such and such date. God bless you. That was my letter of recommendation. Well, he took that and the Lord blessed him with a job. So happy ending all the way around. But he had lost his contentment by the voices that he was listening to. John the Baptist, he's pointing to the divinity of Jesus Christ as the head and the ultimate source of reality. If Jesus, the one who comes from heaven and is above, if he's not first in your life, then you're living at odds with the universe. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He is the one that scripture says sustains all things. And he will be your judge. What will you do with Jesus, my friend? Neutral you cannot be. We try to stand in that place of neutrality sometimes, don't we? I thought I'd sing a little bit. I saw some of you yawning out there, so. <laughs> One day your heart will be asking, oh friend, what will you do with me? 
He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Well, what is this testimony? Well, this testimony is that God is truthful. The testimony is that God can be trusted. Jesus speaks the words of God and is God himself because he shares in the Holy Spirit without limit. Without limitation, it says. You and I don't receive the Holy Spirit without limit in the same way that Jesus did. Otherwise, we would be doing the same works that he did. But this is a way that John is saying the divinity of Jesus Christ is revealed here because he receives the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Three centuries after John wrote, one Jewish rabbi, aha, rightly commented that the Holy Spirit who rested on the prophets did so according to the measure of each prophet's assignment. Not so to Jesus. To him, God gives the Spirit without limits. This is because the Father loves the Son and has given Jesus a special place. Jesus is the one who stands with everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Once again, John's Gospel is saying something here that sounds a bit ominous. Jesus is the doorkeeper to everything good and lasting. And you can only ignore him and you can only run for him, from him for so long. Either you embrace Jesus Christ or you remain under the wrath of God. There's no steering around this. And I realize just how politically incorrect this is. It destroys all of our theologies of warm, fuzzy Jesus and God as Santa Claus or an indulgent parent. God who never expects anything. A God who never disciplines. Who doesn't really care about your life anyway. You just do whatever you want, honey. You see, God creates out of love. He blesses all life continually out of love. When humanity falls into sin, he makes a way out of love to redeem the relationship. He makes reconciliation with us because of love. He is faithful because of his love. He gives himself and he gives his son to us because God the Father is love. God also disciplines out of love. When you choose self as the center of reality, when you choose sin, when you look in the eyes of Jesus and say things like, mm, I don't really know him. Who can really be sure anyway? What difference does it really make? Still, God will seek after you and pursue you. Because God is love. And so God's wrath, it's not blind. It's not impersonal. 
It's the response of a holy God who comes into our world and sees that it's sadly fallen and in rebellion and finds very few who want anything to do with him. So doing the remodeling of the house uh, allowed me to meet some interesting characters, some from within this church and some outside of it. And sometimes uh, when people find out I'm a preacher or a missionary or whatever, conversations go in interesting directions. Somehow it gets a little comfortable, uncomfortable, say things that you wouldn't normally say. These are not topics that you're comfortable sharing about with other people. It's interesting, I think. Well, we had this nice guy helping us at the house who said, yeah, when I was a kid, I used to go to the Christian church, but not anymore because, well, you really can't know. There's definitely something. But as long as you don't kill anybody or do anything really horrible, you should be all right. That was his theology in a bubble. And all I said to him in reply was, you know, I found life is better with Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about spiritual things for a minute, and I'm not saying a word. The only words that I said in that conversation was, life is better with Jesus. And so he kind of talks himself into a corner, and then he gets to the point where he says, I'm uncomfortable. I just don't want to talk about this at all anymore. And I'm not saying a word. I'm just sitting there nodding my head and smiling and looking. It's like, but he recognizes there's some kind of distance between him and God, and he's not comfortable with it. And he doesn't want to be reminded of that. And it's, it's somehow painful. You see, like, but this, I can't give him too hard of a time because he is not unique Every human being who has ever lived has sinned, and we all try in our own ways to hedge our bets. The wisdom of this world says, don't put all your eggs into one basket. Financially, this may make really good sense. Get mutual funds, diversify your portfolio, have fun doing it, okay? Spiritually, that's the most destructive thing you could ever do. Because when we come face to face with Jesus, he doesn't want just a few things here or there. He wants our heart. He wants our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. He is Lord. And he wants you to know that. None of us surrender our selfishness or our narcissism or our pride very easily. We have to learn how to trust. Faith isn't something that just poof, it's all there all of a sudden. It's something that has to be nurtured. It's something that grows. It's something we have to invest in. There's a lot of people like this young man who came and worked at our house who are trying to walk on some middle path that really doesn't exist. And in the end, you have only two choices. Embrace Jesus for the salvation of your soul or walk away to your destruction. If you embrace Jesus... He will teach you how to trust and rely on Him. He will teach you how to put all of your eggs into His basket. 
and that basket, let me just say, in the hands of Jesus, that's the only place where things are truly secure. So what am I asking us to do? What's a, what's a point or a takeaway that I'm giving you from the sermon today? Well, I'm, I'm basically done. I'm wrapping up. I'm not asking you to stop chewing tobacco or stop watching Ducks games yelling like a maniac or stop wasting time playing video games or stop your shopping binges or stop eating junk food all the time. I'm asking you to go to Jesus and say, what is the next thing in my life, Lord, you want me to hand over to you? What's the next egg, Lord, I need to put in your basket? What's the next sin it's time to relinquish? What's the next way you want me to enter into your easy yoke, Lord? You must become greater, Jesus, and I must become less. Let's pray that together. Will you say that with me? You must become greater, Jesus. I must become less. One more time. Say that with me in this prayer. You must become greater, Jesus, and I must become less. When you can say that from the depth of your soul, when you mean that in your heart and you show it in your life, you will move to wonderful new places. As we learn humility and full commitment to Jesus Christ, I think some of us will be surprised at how joyful it is the joy, the wisdom, the power that only comes by placing your full life and your full allegiance into the hands of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. Live your life in a way that you say, Jesus, you become greater, and help me to become less, and you will experience the joy of the Lord. So whatever needs you have this morning, wherever the, the sermon hits you or misses you, uh, life situations where you need prayer, putting on the Lord and baptism. Come on up, Tyler. Um, I don't know what your needs are. You have an opportunity, though, to, to come forward and share those with me, and we'll pray for you, and we'll help you any way we can as we stand and sing together.